Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. This week, I'm joined by Motley Fool Canada advisor Jim Gillies to break down Aircap earnings and share his thoughts on Warren Buffett's annual letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders released over the weekend. Jim, welcome back on the podcast. Uh, thanks, Nick. Uh, glad to be here. Yeah, great, great to have you, you back on the show. Uh, you're a value investor, Jim. <laughs> Value's coming back this year that's, in 2021. How do you rumor. feel? Yeah, that's the rumor. I'm the... I'm the least exciting investor at the party most days, but but occasionally I have my moments, and it looks like the last week or two weeks, uh, yeah, we're, I'm having a pretty decent year, but uh, you know that's uh, I I I planted those seeds a few years ago. I'll put it that way. In a lot of cases, don't call it a comeback. That's all I'm I'm trying to say. Uh, so I mentioned off the top, we're going to talk about Aircap Holdings. That's a company that you can clearly think is a of, of as a value stock, and we maybe we'll talk about that. Uh, here in a little bit. Longtime listeners should be familiar uh, with this company. I talked about it with Lou Whiteman back on October 22nd. The stock is up over 60% uh, since then uh, compared to the S&P up 11%. So it's been uh, quite a good performer since we talked about it on the podcast. For folks that maybe missed that episode, Jim, or aren't familiar with what Aircap does, what can you tell us about this company? Sure. Um, Yeah, Aircap is... Uh, the world's largest owner of commercial aircraft. A lot of people kind of go, what? I mean, wasn't it one of the airlines? Uh, no, it's Aircap because what they do, they are a leasing company. They buy planes and then they lease them to pretty much all of the major and a lot of the minor airlines around the world. A lot of the national flag carriers. So, you know, your Air Canada, your uh, your Lufthansa's, um, uh, your American Airlines, if the U.S. can be said to have a national carrier, uh, you know they lease to them, and uh, they basically, you know, I, I like to look at leasing companies. Leasing companies are basically a spread business, so a lot of people get a little freaked out when they look go look at um, Aircap's got about a, I think about a six billion dollar market cap as of today. Uh, you go look at them; they got like what looks like about thirty thirty odd billion dollars in debt on the balance sheet, and people kind of freak out. Um, but this is a leasing company, so debt is raw material for these types of companies. So they're borrowing at one rate, you know, three, four percent. I think they're about four percent for the year just completed, uh, you know, a weighted average uh, cost of their funds. And then they lease out the planes to these carriers, uh, some big, some small, like I said, and they get paid back seven eight percent and so they're earning a spread so leasing companies are a spread business and you want a company that's properly managing that spread and aircap is and and full disclosure i i own shares myself as you said i've recommended shares at a considerably lower price didn't catch the bottom but uh, uh i did pretty well i think um you know this is uh I, my opinion is these guys are really good at what they do yeah, so full disclosure, I own some shares as well. Bought some after that after we did that that episode uh, back in October uh, that we mentioned earlier. So when you talk about airlines, uh, aircraft leasing, certainly this whole industry has been impacted uh, by the pandemic. When you can't travel anywhere, uh, folks that are exposed to the airline industry are, are going to have uh, some impact. How has Aircap uh, been impacted by these pandemic disruptions? 
far less than I was expecting. And that sounds a little weird, right? Um, you essentially had, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I, I, tra air, air travel just slammed shut pretty much a year ago. Uh, it started to come back, started to come back first in Asia, then in Europe, and now uh, in North America. But business travel is obviously way down. Uh, personal travel is obviously way down. Uh, and, uh, you know, there there were some expected um there were some expected hurdles, but far less than I was expecting. I, I, I had my catastrophic model uh, set up as you could see 50% of Aircap's equity wiped out. Um, for a point of comparison, uh, uh, let me pull it up here. The, the book value, uh, which is, you know, where, where we find their equity here, uh, or here, their, uh, their equity is basically flat year over year. Their book value's down, I think, about three percent. It's gone, not even that. It's uh, it's uh, it ended 2020 at sixty nine dollars and change book value per share. Uh, it ended last year, so really when the pandemic was really just contained, <laughs> contained, um, known to be in in parts of China. Uh, it ended last year at seventy two dollars and change. So uh, in what is unquestionably the worst year for aircap uh, and the airline industry in our lifetimes and i'm a bit older than you um the uh you know it was down like you know two dollars and seventy cents or whatever that works out to um they did you know and and, and a lot of I, I the reason you got the the bargain prices you saw in aircap because it was over sixty dollars uh, pre-pandemic, and I think it bottomed around $12 a share. It's about 50 today. Um, the reason it fell so much is, of course, people, you know, people tend to do this, or investors tend to do this, They when you know, the short-term thinking takes over, and people just want to get out. Uh, and they, they project what is known in the here and now. They project it out into the far distant future. And that is... Uh, that that's opportunity to 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 a guy like me. You, know, you already branded me a value guy, so I guess I'll run with it. Uh, that's opportunity because that that kind of wanton selling. When uh, and I'd known a little bit about Aircap before that. I owned a little bit before the pandemic drop, uh, mainly just to keep tabs. And then when it blew up, uh, uh, I, I owned a lot more. Um, these guys are. As I said, they're really good at what they do, and you know what the, what they're able to do is to manage things to absorb the blows because the blows did come. Uh, you know, uh, there are multiple uh, airlines that have entered the sweet embrace of bankruptcy uh, during uh, during the pandemic. Um, the most prominent would probably be, uh, or at least the one I can remember, uh, is uh, Norwegian Air, I believe. Um, they had a bunch of 787s and uh, um, they, I think they went boom in about May or June of last year um, and had to, and, and actually it was a little weird because Aircap actually took back equity. Usually when, you know, Aircap will tell you, we deal with bankruptcies all the time. And indeed, airlines go bankrupt all the time. You know, uh, I mentioned the flag carriers, Air Canada, Air Canada went bankrupt in 2003, 2004. Uh American Airlines, they last went bankrupt in, uh, I believe, 2011. You know, and 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 the the flag carriers tend to keep flying. They just get reorganized within bankruptcy. The equity holders get wiped out, but the planes keep going, uh, and 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 the service keeps going. And it's often a national argument. You know, like Air Canada, 
it, it would have to be a really, really bad set of circumstances for the Canadian government to let Air Canada go out of business, like, you know, sell off the assets and close up shop. Uh, so, you know, but you saw, you know, smaller carriers like uh, Virgin Australia went under, uh, Air Mauritius went into uh, bankruptcy protection, uh, I believe Avianca out of Columbia as well. Um, but as CEO Angus Kelly has said multiple times uh, before and also during the pandemic, if you've listened to various presentations they've done or conference calls, they've said, we, we, deal, we deal with bankruptcies every year. We had a bit more this year, but you know what we don't have in other years where companies, where air, airlines go bankrupt, they t- they tend to be allowed to go bankrupt. They don't have government money raining down upon them to preserve them through the pandemic. So you know it looked bad, and certainly if you, all you looked at was stock price and you see this thing down eighty plus percent from its high or something like that, you could panic. But if you actually Follow the company, understand how they make make their make their money. Read a few conference calls and see what they were doing. And they they said, okay, look, we're we're gonna we're gonna allow you to defer. We will allow some carriers. You can defer. We'll defer and spread out the payments that we're due because the airlines don't want to give back the plane, right? Because they would like to keep running. And you know they are quite often you know they've got. Uh, uh, I'm thinking of some of the Chinese carriers who have been customers of Aircap and, and some of the predecessor companies for three decades. What, we're going to, you know, panic now and close up shop? No, we want to be customers for the next three decades as well. So, you know, it's kind of one of the last things that goes as the planes get taken back. But if the thing does go down and can't get back off the mat, Aircap will quite often take the plane back and redeploy it. Uh, they are masters at selling planes. And uh, even even in the case of Norwegian Air, where they did take back equity, um, I don't think they wanted to, but they took back equity to help uh, Norwegian Air restructure. Uh, and then they subsequently, after the restructuring, did go into bankruptcy. But uh, fortunately, um, Aircap did exit their equity holdings in that. So there's a lot of things they can do. They work with their customers. Everyone involved, the airlines, Aircap, they've all got the long-term perspective that you need when, you know, basically wheeling and dealing 25 and 30-year assets. Right, so certainly uh, you're gonna. It's gonna be a little bit abnormal relative to the regular operating procedure when you've got countries across the world uh, uh, shutting down travel. But but to your point, Aircap has been able to to um, and the airlines in particular have been able to access capital in a way that I think surprised a lot of folks, which ties into the the way Aircap has been able to continue collecting payments um, and all those sorts of things. Aircap just reported earnings earlier this week. What are we seeing so so far from the business as far as you know, the, the state of the business today? State of the business is good, all things considered. Um, you know, uh, as I said earlier, this is the first time we've ever, this is the worst the industry has ever looked in our lifetimes. It is largely outside of the control of all involved. So everyone's got that long-term mindset and we're going to work together. We're going to get through. Um, the worst was the results reported in Q2 of uh, 2020. Um, you know, that's when things, things looked the worst, the number, the amount of cash flow that was being generated by, uh, by air cap was at its, uh, nadir. Um, they had, uh, I mentioned Norwegian airlines. That's when the, the bankruptcy spiked or the, the airlines in trouble spiked. Um, where we are now is actually looking pretty good. And even though the stock is uh, more than doubled 
I'll say roughly doubled from, from where we put it into Hidden Gems Canada. Um, I really like where they are because uh, you, in, in, in Q4, so for the full year, for the full year of, of 2020, they did about 2.1 billion in in uh, in, in uh, operating cash flow. Um, now that's down from the year before, obviously, uh, but it's uh, it's not that bad. And you know, uh, Q4, for example, there was more than double the cash flow of that Nader quarter, Q2. Um, you know, and, and so that that was pretty good. It was up, uh, I believe, it was up about twenty percent from Q3, and like I said, more than double from Q2. Uh, the deferral requests, uh, you know, airlines in trouble asking for a little relief on their lease payments. Uh, those are very significantly down. I think the balance of so what happened deferral basically you just accrue uh, a balance of, of payments that are not made. And over time, as those payments start coming back in, as business picks back up again, uh, that balance go down until hopefully gets to zero. I think the deferral balance only rose $5 million quarter over quarter, which for a company of this size, I mean, that's, they're going to find that in the couch. Um, you know, so it's not a, it's not a big deal. They've also, uh, they signed lease agreements for 22 narrow body aircraft in Q4, another nine wide body aircrafts. They sold 12 planes because these guys are always buying and selling. Uh, for a comparison, they own about, I think it's about 940 planes outright, and they manage another um, couple hundred or a hundred and change for others. And then they also uh, just pulled up the number. They own 939, so it's pretty close. 940. They own a, they own outright 939. They manage 105 for uh, others, and they've got um, uh, 286 on order. Uh, they did push out because the other thing is that they did is they pushed out their orders in the delivery book, Nick. So that then takes the heat off what they need to push out in terms of cash. Um, most of these planes that they've already got on order but haven't been delivered yet because you know, Boeing and Airbus just can't, you know, it's, it's not like a, a car production line where you're churning on a new vehicle every 90 seconds. These take a couple of years to build. Um, you know, they, these things have already pretty much got a customer on day one the second they are officially cleared for takeoff, no pun intended. Um, so they they've got a pretty good fleet. They understand fleet management. The other thing that I really like about um, Aircap is they have been um, really diligent about keeping newer aircrafts flying. So they they the average age of their fleet is about six point four years, slightly up uh, from where it was about a year ago, which I think was six point two. But when you think about the average plane is uh, probably has a, a useful life twenty five thirty years. Um, so they're, they're very much at the, uh, the forefront of this. Uh, they own new technology, obviously. The average remaining lease term for these things is about seven years, just over seven years. And they're very good at selling and placing these into the market, the secondary market down the road. But from a valuation perspective, they look great. From a business fundamentals, it's all popping up. They look great. And I think the industry is going to change in a way, and this is not unique to my insight. Uh, you know, the CEO Angus Kelly again was—he um, was kind of saying this on the on the conference call, uh, but it's something that I was highlighting as well. Uh, I think when I started, when I recommended this, I think it was May last year, so maybe ten months ago. Was post-pandemic, this industry is going to be tilted in favor of AirCap. So you've still got AirCap trading at a 
not a dirt cheap valuation, but cheap. And I think the industry fundamentals are going to now favor it going forward. And what I mean by that is all of the airlines that get through this pandemic, a lot of them have got a lot more debt on their books. A lot of them have, you know, owe the government a little bit of money. Um, they're not going to want to tie up capital and owning planes. So what's the solution? Hey, leasing company, can I get a new 787? And that's uh, that's where I think where we're going to go with AirCap. Absolutely, I, I pulled a quote from the uh, from the conference call earlier this week from Angus Kelly. To your point, he says the first priority for all all airlines is to deleverage their balance sheets and increase their fleet flexibility going forward. Both of these objectives mean asset light balance sheets for the airlines. Airlines will not repair their balance sheets overnight, and so the flexibility that comes from leasing will remain attractive to airlines for years into the future, such that we see a number a number of very strong years ahead for the industry. So yeah, Jim, just to go back, you mentioned, you know, uh, we talked about over the summer valuations were, were were depressed significantly because of what was going on with the pandemic. As you look forward from here, is this still a stock you'd be excited about buying today, given the growth opportunities and the valuation today? I'm going to answer Socratically, if that's okay. Well, I used to teach at local university as well, and I have always I always like doing that because you can extend a lecture out when you got to fill a three hour block, right? Um, so here is a company that, in good times, pre pandemic traded between about 0.9 and 1.05 times book value most of the time, made a lot of cash, and they took practically all their free cash flow, and they bought back their own stock. So they dropped their, their share count by about 40% pre-pandemic. They halted the buyback plan during the pandemic. So that's at zero right now, for now, temporarily. They're trading at 0.7 times book value, down from that pre-pandemic kind of normalized range of say 0.9 to 1.1. Um, they're trading at about 0.7 times book value. They're trading at about six times earnings if you back out kind of the one-time uh, expenses in 2020 associated with the pandemic. And I believe, as I just stated, that I think the the world will be more favorable to a company like Aircap and, and their competitors as well, the, the leasing companies. This will be more, the environment will be more favorable to them and in line with the quote you just provided from CEO Kelly uh, for years to come. So well below historical valuation, six times earnings, a better environment in a reopening world. Is this a stock I'm still interested in? What do you think? <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it. We'll leave it there uh, with our, with our uh, 10 minutes uh, uh, left here on the podcast. Want to talk briefly about the Berkshire Hathaway letter over the weekend released on Saturday. Any big takeaways for you from, from that letter, Jim? Um, you assume I've read it. Of course, of course, I mean, of course, come I, on, man. You're of course, a stock I read guy. it. You got to read it. My 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 partner likes to make fun of me because basically I set my clock by that for that Saturday morning in in fe late February early March and I've read it before coffee in the morning on uh, the day it comes out. Um, I I think it was a good letter. I think I think Warren at this point is is playing the hits a little bit, um, but I think he had a number of things to say that were. Uh, that were good, and and I think there was a little bit of a non sequitur in there, that I, which I haven't seen anyone comment on. So I think I'll comment on it. Um, 
Uh, they talk about, you know, Berkshire buying back their own shares. They bought back about uh, $25 billion of Berkshire shares, which, of course, is a departure from Buffett for years and years and years, resisted buying back Berkshire shares, even though it was at a ridiculously good value. And he repeatedly, in every other letter, was always talking about how, oh, the um, the intrinsic value of Berkshire Hathaway is far in excess of its book value, and the book value is cheap. Um to which a lot of value types, myself included, said, included then said, well, rather than buying airlines and IBM, why don't you buy back your own stock? But uh, he talked, he's talked many times about the importance of, of you, buybacks are not uh, to be used at all times. You buy back stock when the business is trading at an, a discount to a conservatively calculated intrinsic value, do that and buybacks are accretive to, to value for the shareholders who remain. So, and, and, and we all understand that and that's great and that's wonderful and he's repeated that in this letter, he's said it before. Then he goes on to praise how Apple, how Berkshire owns a larger piece of Apple because of their buybacks. Well, you know, look, I own Apple as well. I, I like Apple. I buy Apple routinely when it's 20, 25% off its high. Um, Apple is almost the definition of a company that buys back its own stock indiscriminately, regardless of valuation. So, you know, hey, Uncle Warren, I love you, but you can't have it both ways. So that's the one thing that, that stuck out to me, aside from we could talk about all the other little uh, nuances if you want. But that was the one I'm like, huh. Well, I do think that, that that's a fair point. And there, there's some tension there as well, where he said, you know, CEOs shouldn't buy back you know, shares indiscriminately, praises Apple, also talks about how he sold Apple in the quarter. So if Apple, if he's selling Apple, presumably it's not a great value and Apple shouldn't be shouldn't be buying back. But I, I did think it was interesting that, that, you know, he talked about Berkshire owns 5.4% of Apple today. They've taken out $775 million in dividends, sold $11 billion, um, and they own more than they of the company that they did when they took the original stake of 5.2%. Um, kind of interesting. The other thing I, I thought that, that popped out for me uh, about Berkshire is he, he talked about the four jewels of the company, Apple being the one that they don't, they don't uh, you know, have a controlling stake in. And the, the big thing that I thought was interesting is when you look at the property and casualty insurance business, you look about Berkshire Hathaway Energy and you look at BNSF Railroad. When he talked about all those businesses, he talks about something that those businesses are able to do being a part of Berkshire that other in other folks in the industry aren't. So for Berkshire Hathaway Energy, they're a utility that doesn't pay a dividend. So they're able to invest lots more cash in this new uh, uh, recreation of the grid heading out into the future. BNSF Railroad, they pay dividends to Berkshire, but they're not required to. It's based on kind of the, ne the capital needs of the business. And because of that, BNSF is able to invest massive amounts into the infrastructure of their railroad, last of their railroad. Lastly, he talked about uh, the other jewel was the property and casualty insurance business. And because of the nature of the way Berkshire Hathaway is constructed, they have lots more capital to work with and are able to employ a much more equity-heavy strategy than all the other folks in the industry. And we're in this world that everybody talks about of low interest rates or why in the world you ever own bonds. Charlie Munger, when he did his uh, Daily Journal meeting the other week, said, I don't own bonds anymore. These are three instances where because of the way Berkshire Hathaway is managed, they were able to take a much more equity-heavy portfolio in their insurance business. They're able to invest much more capital into their railroad than other railroads are. They're able to invest much more capital into their utility than other utilities are. And this is, I think, if you read the letter and see the points that he, that he, that he kind of calls out, you see why this conglomerate form makes Berkshire special, why those assets that are in Berkshire are arguably worth more as part of this conglomerate than they would be spun out 
on their own. And, and, and I think just seeing the points that he, he harped on in the letter really highlights what makes Berkshire special and why I think it's a company that, that is, can still generate great returns for investors going forward from today. Yeah, Nick, uh, first off, I don't think I can add anything to that wonderful description. Um, I, what you've just described is we could probably boil it down to two words as, or we'll, we'll call it three words, insurmountable competitive advantage. Because who is going to come along and take on Berkshire in these three spaces, as you call it, we'll push Apple, in these three spaces, who can replicate that? Because, you know, and, and it's kind of the genius of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, which has long said, you know, look, we're not interested in taking over divisions or taking over businesses and controlling them from a central hub. Like, you know, we're, any, anybody we buy, you'd best be prepared to continue operating as you were before we bought a controlling stake in you because, you know, uh, you better come with good management because we can't provide it. Um, that's always uh, been a line that's been in uh, in the annual reports from Berkshire. Um, but yeah, they're, they, they have this, you know, almost insurmountable competitive advantage in those three spaces, which allow them to do things the, competi- the, ind- the competitors in the individual spaces cannot do. Um, and, you know, it's always the game. It's certainly not unique to me, but it's a game that you, I've seen from many other people. Um, what would it take? How much would it cost to replicate a truly great business, a truly great brand? Like, what would it cost to replicate some things? Uh, so, you know, what would it cost to replicate Coca-Cola? You know, could you do it for a billion dollars? Could you do it for ten billion, a hundred billion? Um, you know, and and the answer, of course, is well, you know, you give me a hundred billion dollars to replicate. I mean, Berkshire. What do I need? I, I even even the the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad. How do you replicate what they do? Like you know, basically, there's them and then the other small number of of railroads, but you know, operating, uh, you know, um, uh, CP and uh, Canadian National come to mind, but uh, you know, there's a few others. Um, how, how do you replicate what they've got going? How do you replicate, as you say, the Berkshire Energy? Uh, and their and their or Berkshire Hathaway Energy and you know their foray into rebuilding the grid and also their focus on renewables which they have. Um, so I, you know, I, I Berkshire for me I've I've been a shareholder for a while. Um, I've never sold a share. Have no intention of selling anytime soon. I'm happy to see that. Uh, that Berkshire is uh, now buying their own stock back because at the present price, I think it's a good price. Uh, and it's one of those stocks that I hold as a, um, as a bedrock position. You know, we, we all love our growth stocks and certainly when times are great, you know, the growthy names that go up a couple hundred percent in a, in a year from time to time, which we've just seen the past year almost spread a little too wide. Um, those are fun. But uh, when times get a little more, troubled or the market decides to sell off boy it's nice to have some bedrock to kind of anchor things down and 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 and, and buttress against your your portfolio against so um you know i i i i even think berkshire today is a great price so you know fools you know yeah i was gonna ask you so so i mentioned off the top or i think i mentioned off the top that that berkshire was my kind of energy and industrials pick for for 2021 when we did our our end of the year show on, on, on New Year's Eve. So far this year, uh, Berkshire, I pulled the numbers up this morning, up, uh, I think it's 8.5% uh, 
uh, versus uh, the S&P up uh, 2% for the year. Do you think Berkshire can beat the S&P for the next five years, Jim? Oh, they haven't done it recently, but a lot of that uh, you could put down to some of the big tech influence on um, on the S and P and and big tech. Uh, in a lot of cases, has uh, has seen multiple expansion. Now, I could make an argument that some of the big tech is uh, Facebook, uh, uh, particularly. Look, uh, from a valuation perspective, look good. Uh, I understand it's issues with some people and, and Facebook, but uh, that's not my place to tell people how to think on that. Um, I think they can, if only because I think that uh, uh, just from a just from a valuation disparity, I think Berkshire probably has um, they, they got a bit of a head start because they were trading so long. I, I'm not too sure where they are now. I haven't looked in a while, uh, but I know they were hovering in the 1.1, 1.2 times book value range for a long time, and um, that is traditionally a good position to be in with Berkshire. Do they ever get back to the 1.5 to 1.8 range at their present size? Probably not, but uh, I, I, I'm not I'm not as optimistic about the S&P's chances over the next couple of years, given its performance. You know, like last year it was up about, what, 18% or maybe I might be overshooting. The year before it was up 31%. People forget how well it did in, in 2019. Um, you know, it's hard for the equity markets to grow much beyond um, GDP as a whole um, over over the long term. Like you know, it's stocks and you know the the wealth of the nation, and you see things like uh, the Buffett ratio, to quote, which of course he likes to talk about, um, uh, which is uh, it's a it's a broad valuation tool. Nick, I I think you probably know it, but for those who haven't heard of it, it's a broad valuation tool where you compare. Uh, the value of basically the stock market of the S&P and all the stocks in the known universe kind of or the American universe uh, against the value of GDP. And obviously, there's some pandemic stuff last year, but we'll, we'll do a normalized GDP. And, and we're kind of at all time records on that level. And that traditionally, when we're at all time records, that doesn't bode well for the equity markets going forward. Um, they tend to be flat. They can go down, um, you know. I yeah. So if you want me to take a horse in this race, I'll take Berkshire for five years, and people can call me stupid in five years, and that's okay. Yeah, well, well, you know, if you look back over the past twenty years or so, a lot of Berkshire's outperformance has come in times where the market has maybe um, not been at not been uh, performing at its best. So, so those those two things would align. The other thing I would say is I, I tweeted this out. Um, you know, they're they're turning kind of turning the buybacks on, and I, I tweet out, you know, that thing in Star Wars where the Emperor goes. We can now witness the the full power firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. I think we're going to witness the full firepower of the Berkshire buyback machine here in the next couple of years, and I, I think that can deliver some some pretty surprising returns for investors. But we'll see. Um, Jim Gillies, any last thoughts before we hit the old uh, dusty trail on Aircap <laughs> and Berkshire and the future of value investing for all the fools out there? Um. Boy, we could do a long thing on value investing as well, um, because I I I get uh, I, I I do get I clench up a little bit when people dismiss value investing um, 
Because a lot of people, I think, think of value investing as, oh, just low PEs and low PBs, low price to book ratio, which is, and I've used, I realize I've used uh, the low PE and the low price to book ratio of uh, AirCap here and, and low price to book ratio for Berkshire as examples. But I can tell you, I don't use most of those tools. Most of my tools are, are just um, thinking of oddball things that could happen. Cough, GameStop, cough. Um, and, and, you know, I'm a very cash flow focused guy. Um, which, you know, is, is difficult in a SaaS world sometimes. There's not a lot of cash there. Uh, one of our compatriots, we had a meeting uh, earlier this morning and, and he was kind of quipping that, uh, boy, he lo- he's looking at SaaS companies. Boy, it's nice to see an IBADA multiple occasionally because um, most of those companies are still losing so much money as they, as they grow rapidly and try to take their market. Um, you know, and, and I, w- I would encourage people to, as a value investing thought process you know it's to is to go beyond and look for uh you know look for things where the cash flow story tells a different story from what the market's telling you look for places with uh, boy if you can find founder managements who are treating their own equity with respect um you know who also like a good cash flow story i could mention a couple of i'm not gonna go down one particular road but uh boy those are you find those and you just grab on and 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 very foolishly you never sell uh unless you need the money for buying a house or whatever but uh, um you know the value investing is nothing more than just looking at a company uh, and saying what is the value of the future cash flows estimated reasonably that this company will throw off over the course of its lifetime sum it up and then what is the current stock trading price? And so, you know, a little company like Amazon, for example, trading at $200 in, I don't know, 2011, 2012. Well, I bought that as a value investment. You know, it's our friend Uncle Joe Mager kind of pounded that into my head. You know, it's like, no, this is value. Uh, you know, and you kind of open your eyes and go, yeah, this is value, actually. Uh, so uh, maybe what my last comment would be is, you know, the the open yourself to the world of maybe value investing for the 21st century. We'll ignore those cigar butts. We'll ignore just working off of just stale ratios that we shouldn't be looking at and, and start, you know, really looking at businesses, looking at managements and looking at how management generates cash. Follow the money, everybody. Uh, Follow the money. Thanks for joining me as always. Thank you. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Jim Gillies, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and fool along. 